Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hi again, it's Harry. Welcome to Season 2 of Margins of Error, the podcast where I look for the personal stories behind the stats. Now, you haven't heard my voice in a while, so it's the perfect time for me to ask you a question. Do I have an accent? You see, I hear myself talk and I don't think I have an accent. I'm told, though, that sometimes I sound like I've come straight out of a time machine. That does make some sense to me. You see, I sound just like my father, who was born in New York City in 1927. Give me your thoughts on Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber? (laughs) Who is Justin Bieber? (laughs) My father means a lot to me, and although he has gone to the other side of the rainbow, I'd like to think that part of him lives on through me. Indeed, my father and I share the New York accent. We don't sound like the people you hear on most national commercials, on TV, or in the movies. These commercials can make you think that all Americans sound alike. There's even a phrase for this, quote-unquote, general American. It's a bland accent that doesn't seem to be tied to any place in particular. This got me thinking, are regional accents such as mine disappearing? There's surprisingly little information on this. One piece of data suggests that we are losing our regional differences. Researchers at UT Austin have been tracking the decline of the traditional Texas accent. In the 1980s, 80% of Texans they interviewed had that accent. As of 2013, only a third of them do. But this is just one piece of data. So I decided to investigate, and what I found on my journey is far more complicated than I thought it would be. Because just like me, some of you listeners don't admit to having an accent. Hey, Harry, uh, people have told me for the longest time that I have an accent. Um, I don't agree with them. You see, I tell them that there's 20 million New Yorkers and you're out here in uh, California or Washington. I think you have the accent. I was told that I have a Californian accent. I did not know California had an accent, but... I guess maybe once in a while I can get into the, oh my God, like totally valley girl, but not in everyday speaking. People I grew up with would probably say that I don't have a Southern accent. And part of that is because I made a pretty conscious effort when I was coming out of college to kind of lose my Southern accent. 
Hey, Harry, my name is Mansoor. Uh, I'm a naturalized American, and I went to college in Iowa, uh, and that has created an accent that's entirely American, but entirely neutral. Entirely neutral, huh? We'll see about that. So today, we'll figure out what's happening to regional accents in the United States. As social media connects us all, is a little part of what makes the different parts of America unique dying along with it? And if so, what else is getting lost along the way? But before we talk about where accents are going, let's talk about where they've been. Our journey starts with one of my favorite little gadgets on the internet, the famous New York Times dialect quiz. It's 25 questions long, and it asks what word or words you use to describe different places, things, or scenarios. Then using that data, it predicts where in the United States you're from. Now, the New York Times quiz uses your answers to pinpoint both your dialect and your accent. We often use those words interchangeably, but if you ask a dialect coach, they mean different things. An accent refers to the way a word sounds across a country. I say, New York. Well, you might say, New York. A dialect, on the other hand, refers to the grammar and specific words we use. I wanted to compare my answers with someone from a different state to see if we really are starting to talk the same. Oh, well, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm sure the twang is probably already very apparent. This is Mia Jackson. So I'm a comedian. I am born and raised in Columbus, Georgia. So not even Atlanta and um, been in New York probably since 2019. All right. So question number one is how would you address a group of two or more people? Would you address them as you all, yous, you lot, you guys, you ins? Yins, you, other, or y'all. Y'all, coming in hot with the y'all. So Mia Mia is going with y'all, and I will tell you that that is, in fact, the answer that I gave. I also gave y'all. Okay. I also gave y'all, which is unusual for a New Yorker, but is very prominent and very popular in the South. A lot of our answers overlapped. It turns out that we both pronounce caramel the same way. That's caramel, not caramel. And we both call those barriers that divide two-way streets medians. But on other things, we were in completely different worlds. What do you call it when rain falls while the sun is shining? Is it a sun shower? The wolf is giving birth. Mia is putting her hands over her mouth as if the answer may be embarrassing. The wolf is giving birth. The devil is beating his wife. A monkey's wedding. A fox's wedding. Pineapple rain. Liquid sun. I have no term or expression for this or other. The devil is beating his wife. That's the one. My grandparents would say it when I was a kid. It used to scare me, and I'd be like, oh, gosh, the devil is... That's a horrible thing to call a... But that's what we called it. That is what you called it. Not surprisingly, folks, I called it a sun shower. A (gasps) sun shower. 
That would have been less scary to a child. It would have been less scary. It also seems to describe what's going on. Yeah, but that's what, that's what they called it. Very, uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, the Southern term. And when we submitted her answers, sure enough. Oh, my God. Check this out. <laughs> Tell me if this is right. It says that essentially the three most similar cities are Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, Georgia, and Montgomery, Alabama. Oh, they got me because I'm from Columbus, Georgia. So, yeah, Columbus and Atlanta is where I spent the bulk of my life. So, yeah. I'll just note quickly in terms of my own results, it knew that I was from the Yonkers. I think it was Yonkers, Jersey City, New York City area, right in that line. It turns out that while we may be co-opting words from each other, whether through TV or social media, and are moving around more than ever, the way we speak is still pretty distinct. So me and I might use a lot of the same words, but we still pronounce them differently. We have different accents. Everyone does. Still, it's hard to put a number on how many accents there are in the United States. There are some number between like three and 25, <laughs> depending on what source you're going to. So you got that? Between three and 25. That's a huge range. As a stats guy, I believe the technical term for this is, that's freaking nuts, folks. By the way, that's Nicole Holiday. She's an assistant professor of linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. Nicole says it's difficult to pinpoint exactly how many accents there are because language is squishier than you might think. Experts simply can't agree on where to draw the line sometimes. But a lot of linguists defer to William LeBob from UPenn. He's one of the most renowned sociolinguists of the last 60 years, and he outlined nine regional varieties. They are, you know, kind of exactly what you would think. So New York City gets its own. You've already heard my New York accent. You've also heard the Southeastern accent earlier when Mia Jackson spoke. To demonstrate the other ones, we asked people from across the country to say this one phrase, quote, My dad ordered a drink of water when he found out the beer was $10. There is the Western dialect, so this is like California and everything out West. My dad ordered a drink of water when he found out the beer was $10. The North Central or like Upper Midwest, so stereotypical kind of Michiganders. Then there's the Inland North or the Great Lakes. My dad ordered a drink of water when he found out the beer was $10. Midland, which is our, like, supposed to be Midwest. Like, I'm, I'm a Midland speaker because I'm from central Ohio. There's also western Pennsylvania. Um, so Pennsylvania gets cut in half. My dad ordered a drink of water when he found out the beer was $10. There's the Mid-Atlantic, so that includes Philadelphia, Baltimore. My dad ordered a drink of water when he found out the beer was $10. And then uh, the eastern New England, so Maine and Boston uh, are examples of, of those. And the way that they classify these is by sort of shared features in those areas. New York is very different than Philadelphia in terms of pronunciation, right? So intuitively, most people would say, okay, we got a jaw line there somewhere. And in fact, linguists have a term for such a line. If you're looking at a map, it's called an isogloss. It's a thing that divides you know, dialect regions, for example. Interestingly, isoglosses are frequently 
natural topographical boundaries. So you frequently see them where there are mountains, rivers, things like that. And it's for a good reason. It's intuitive, right? Back in the day before we had planes and stuff, people living on one side of a mountain did not talk to people living on the other side of the mountain. And when groups of people are segregated from each other, they develop different ways of speaking. So accents can tell you a lot about who migrated there and how much contact they've had with other speakers. That's why communities who live in remote places with few newcomers sound a lot like their ancestors. In fact, there's one island off the coast of North Carolina that's kept to itself for hundreds of years. And the people there, they don't speak general American. They don't even sound like other North Carolinians. They actually sort of sound like they're Irish. Uh, actually, all my life, I, I, built, I built the house. Uh, I built it in 1976, and then I remodeled it in 94 and made it into a lot bigger house. In the case of Ocracoke Island, newcomers who move there bring a wider variety of accents with them, which might cause this accent called the hoi toiter or high tider to go away. So is increased mobility making accents disappear? It is the case that um, people are exposed probably to more varieties than they used to be because we're just increasingly mobile. So if you look at the difference in number of people that have been on a plane in their lifetime, it's definitely more in 2022 than it was in 1992 or 1972, um, which means people are able to move around more. Also, people move away from the place that they're born more frequently um, for you know economic opportunities, jobs, things like that. Um, and so this is the kind of language contact situation that can cause change. But it doesn't necessarily cause disappearing accents, right? it causes modifications. So I think it's very tempting to be like, well, we're all just like consuming the same media now and we're all talking to each other and we're all traveling. And that's not actually true, right? Um, We live in media bubbles that's been well-documented and most people don't live very far away from where they were born still. But we are hearing more people that are different than us. But the thing that's really interesting about language acquisition is that we talk like the people that we actually talk to. And so it's not the case that if you spend a bunch of time on, you know, Alabama sorority TikTok, that you will suddenly start sounding like an Alabama sorority girl. You're not talking to them. Folks, I don't want this point to get lost. It doesn't matter how many online videos you watch of people with different accents. It matters whether you talk to people with an accent. If your chums don't speak with an Alabama accent, you're probably not going to develop one. Indeed, it may be that we are misinterpreting what is going on in real time. Accents as a whole aren't disappearing. They're simply changing. But we don't realize they've changed until decades later. Nicole also said that accents we think have gone away might just be used by different speakers. People are often very focused on white speakers, and there there are places in which white speakers are moving in one direction, but other speakers are not. So if you think about uh, in New York City, the rhotic thing, so like whether you say park or pock, like that example, African-Americans are more likely to be non-rhotic than white speakers. White speakers in New York have been getting more rhotic for the last, I don't know, 100 years or something. But black speakers also have been getting more rhotic, but much slower. Um, So when we want to say, like, 
oh, this dialect feature is disappearing. Maybe, or maybe it's moving, maybe it's social meaning is changing, or maybe it's moving to make space for something else. So maybe part of that accent you think is gone has just been adopted by another speaker in a different community. After the break, we'll tell you why the idea of accents disappearing has a bit of the boy who cried wolf syndrome going on. And we'll take a look at the idea that an accent can change under our very noses without us even realizing it. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. American dialects disappearing. That's the headline of an article from a newspaper in Eugene, Oregon. You want to guess what year it was published? 1960. The point is, this anxiety about accents disappearing isn't new. And as we learned from the linguist Nicole Holliday, it's not based on reality either. Accents haven't disappeared. They've merely changed. So why do we keep thinking they're disappearing? Well, for two main reasons. The first is that accents change so slowly that we often don't realize that change is happening. But linguists do. They track these changes by recording interviews and mapping out sound differences, among many other methods. Just ask Dennis Preston. I'm a professor of linguistics at the University of Kentucky. Dennis tracked an accent shift that happened after World War II in the northern cities, which are Buffalo, Cleveland, Milwaukee, Detroit, and Chicago, basically the major cities by the Great Lakes. And what's crazy about this shift is that the speakers themselves didn't realize it was happening. Dennis Preston recorded audio samples from these speakers back in the 80s and 90s. Our favorite uh, is a recording of a young Detroit uh, suburban woman who we call the conflict girl. And she tells a story about a conflict between, uh, between her and her roommate. And she has just wonderful occurrences. When Dennis says occurrences... He means how many times you hear the distinct vowels of the northern city shift. 
So when you listen to this next clip, pay attention to how the woman says her ahs in words like asked and the way she says eh in the word left near the end. The other day I was sleeping at 3.30 in the morning. I was woken up by my roommate who was talking on the phone with her boyfriend at the top of her lungs. So I asked her if she could go in the hall and talk since it was 3.30 and I was sleeping. And she proceeded to talk louder. So I left and walked across campus to another person's room to sleep. When I came back in the morning, she asked me why I'd left because she wasn't doing anything wrong. So that's my story. Thanks. She says L-E-F-T. So I left. And we extracted this word, and then we implayed it even for local speakers. And they all said that she said laughed, L-A-U-G-H-E-T. Left. So people even from the same area, when it was taken out of context, didn't get this word correct. Northern city speakers understood each other in context. But when Dennis played just one word, they didn't. Because the vowel had shifted so much. And it wasn't just this one clip. Dennis played other clips of northern city speakers for people living in that region. And they still misunderstood certain words. Bag sounded like beg. Cut sounded like caught. Had this happen? Our favorite linguist, William Labov, theorized that it had to do with the large number of non-native speakers in the northern cities. Here's Dennis again. And he points uh, in particular uh, to the large number of speakers of Italian and speakers of Yiddish, particularly in the New York City's area. Now, neither one of those languages has the A vowel, the, uh, the vowel in bag and cat. And so old-timey immigrants would say, a place, place to put it in a bag, right? So they had to fix it. So what happens when you fix something? Uh, when you fix something that's on a continuum to make yourself even better, uh, you may overshoot. And so that ah vowel, if you exaggerate it, where does it go? Well, ah is in front of ah and higher. So therefore, let's just, you know, take this ah vowel and make it fronter and higher. Well, then you don't hit ah, you hit something like eh. So instead of saying bag and cat, they were saying things like bag and cat. Still, that vowel change didn't last forever. As linguists performed follow-up studies in the last 10 years, they discovered that the post-war accent wasn't as pronounced as it used to be. It had changed again. Well, there was the movie Fargo, which sort of established the idea that people in the upper Midwest or in those regions were not maybe such ordinary, normal people. Hey, they said they were going to the Twin Cities. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha. Yeah. Basically, once northern city speakers heard what they sounded like to other people through movies like Fargo they retreated from that vowel shift. And this leads us to the second reason why we think accents are disappearing. Stereotypes. Whether we realize it or not, we all have biases for or against certain accents. So if you have warm and fuzzy feelings uh, about New York City, then uh, when you hear New York City noises and words and grammars, those will awaken warm and fuzzy feelings. And Dennis has evidence to back this up. In the 1980s, Dennis asked people to map out where they heard regional accents in the U.S. He had them draw a circle around each part of the country where people spoke differently than they did. 
Then, these participants added a few words to explain what made that speech different. Here, Dennis explains what a typical map might look like. So, for example, right in the middle of the country, uh, across Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, uh, there's a label called Normal American. Well, boop, all of a sudden, there's the word normal. What does normal mean? It doesn't mean much to a dialectologist. Uh, and in fact, the, the circle that he drew around Normal America contains several different dialects. Then when he goes further west, and almost everybody, by the way, identifies Texas. And he's got a southern Texas accent, and then he writes howdy. So he writes a number of uh, interesting things which he, he associates with those areas. But you can see right away that they are associated with stereotypes. Who are the people who say howdy? Uh, people who are hospitable, people who are being friendly. And he also falls prey uh, to, uh, to California, and he mentions both surfer dudes and valley girls like everybody else. Several linguists across the globe still perform this map drawing exercise. And Dennis points out that while the accents themselves have changed, our stereotypes have not changed. I called out to my Twitter followers for examples of this. And here's one from John Shane of Nashville, Tennessee. He's a money manager. And when he would call companies to get their financials, he often got the same response. Nashville? You don't sound like you're from Nashville. This would happen over and over. And it finally occurred to me, it was sort of like Groundhog Day, what they want is hee-haw. They want Grand Ole Opry, and they're just sad not to get it. So I thought, well, I'll give it to them. So when they say, Nashville, you don't sound like you're from Nashville. And I'd say, well, I won't could if I want to. I just don't want to. Dennis Preston says that Shane is not alone here. I just hear that all the time now, uh, where people uh, from the American South don't correspond to either gone with the wind uh, or deliverance, and so therefore (laughs) they can't be Southern. But of course, they're simply new Southern, and they still have characteristics that we can identify. So there does seem to be a bounded perception where if people deviate from it in some ways, you either reject it and don't hear it or reject it and say, oh, well, then that person's not an authentic speaker from the area where I thought he or she was from. The truth is, there's no such thing as an authentic accent. Heck, two of the lead characters in Gone with the Wind, Vivian Lee and Leslie Howard, were British. The bottom line is people from the same area often speak in different ways. Indeed, people themselves can speak in different ways depending on who they are talking to. Maybe you've heard this phrase, code switching. Your language is part of your community, and sometimes things about your community are things that you want to stay in your community. Here's Nicole Holliday, who we heard from earlier in the episode. We're on a podcast so people can't see me. I'm black. Um, And so, you know, when I go and I teach my big fancy class at Penn and I talk about this, sometimes students are like, well, do you actually speak African-American English? I'm like, yes, I do, but not to you. This is a way that I speak in particular situations. And in fact, like that can be a point of pride, right? So it's not only that I can't speak that way. It's also like, Maybe this is just something I want to keep between, you know, me and my family, me and my friends, me and my community. And I have this other voice that I put on for, you know, my professional world. Some folks might also speak differently because of linguistic profiling. So a lot of people will be familiar with racial profiling, right, which is like um, frequently you see the kind of case where 
um, like a black young man is pulled over because he quote unquote fit the description of some, you know, person who committed a crime. Um, linguistic profiling is kind of like this, but imagine that you just have the language to go on. So um, one really famous study that was done by the linguist John Baugh has an illustrative example of this where he was in Palo Alto because he was at Stanford at the time. He called around to get viewings to see a, a potential apartment. And he called in his you know, Stanford professor, like a uh, mainstream voice, and he called in African-American English. And then he also called in this kind of what he calls like a Chicano English, Latino accented um, variety. No one will be surprised that when he called the same apartments sounding black or sounding like a Chicano English speaker, he didn't get as many appointments to see them as when he sounded like he was speaking mainstream, even though he was the same person in the same body. And with linguistic profiling, it's not just about the sound of your voice. It's also about the words you use. So a lot of times people will say, oh, well, this is just bad grammar. You know, you can't you can't say ain't. It's just bad grammar. There's nothing wrong with ain't. Everybody knows what you mean when you say ain't. Lots lots of other languages use this kind of negation strategy <laughs> that ain't does. It's nothing linguistic. It's entirely sociological. So when we hear ain't, it's not about like, oh, ain't doesn't make sense. It's about I have an image of the kind of person who says ain't and it's a person that I don't hold in high regard. That's it. It's not fair that some people should be asked to change the way that they talk and others are not, right? Because of our bias. The onus to change should be on the people listening, not on the people talking. <laughs> and our language is something that tells the story of who we are. And so if we are going to be on this campaign to eliminate regional variation, we're eliminating a lot of the sort of rich history that people come with when we encounter different people. And isn't that the point, right? Don't we like meeting new people because they have these experiences that are different than ours, right? So why should we be trying to erase any part of them? Also on a larger, you know, macro level, these accents just tell the story of us and where we came from, right? So the example of some Scottish and Irish features in Appalachia, the example of Ocracoke Island, the example of African-American English, there's so much history embedded in those. And so I would hate to see like, you know, social pressure <laughs> sort of cause the disappearance of, of these varieties that can tell us so much about the world that we live in and our history. Nicole has given us a lot of stuff to reflect upon. An accent tells us as much about history as it does about today. After the break, we'll dig a bit more into a politician from our past as I work with an accent coach to see what I would sound like with an entirely new manner of speaking. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. That fluffy little kitten slash the cunt sofa apart. Mm-hmm. And now her poor paw is hurt. Good. Got a little New York on the word poor. Poor. Paw. <laughs> and now pa. and and the word now. This is Josh Feliciano Sanchez Moser. 
Josh is the interim head of voice and speech at Brown University's theater program. Basically, Josh is a dialect coach. Good. So uh, that vowel is still really far in the front of your tongue. Think about uh, if you go to the dentist and you say ah, 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 pa, paw, paw, paw. That one. Paw. Mm-hmm. A paw, paw. It's hurt. It's hurt. It's yeah. hurt. Quite good. Yeah, that's quite good. As we learned from Dennis Preston and Nicole Holiday, pop culture has created some harmful stereotypes about the way certain folks speak. So that's one of the reasons why jobs like mine exist is so that we can actually like do the deep, detailed research to make sure that what we're representing in entertainment is as accurate and respectful as possible. So I asked Josh to help me learn to speak authentically in a different accent. When Josh asked me to choose someone I wanted to sound like, I opted for the late Senator Fritz Hollings, who hailed from Charleston, South Carolina. This has been the darndest scam, and I say that advisedly. Now, look, Republican-wise, I've been appointed by Republican President Herbert Hoover, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan. I'm curious. Why? Yeah, what drew you to Senator Hollings? Fritz Hollings, when I was learning about politics, was what he called himself the last of the Mohicans. He was a Southern Democrat who was moderate but not overly conservative. He just had these this almost wit about him, this quick sort of way of thinking. And the voice was so unique. It was Southern, but it wasn't the Southern that I was used to. It sounded a little different. Yeah. Yeah. So Charleston is, and Senator Hollings is a perfect model for a kind of older school Charleston accent. Charleston is unique. Understanding Hollings' background was the first step in learning how to talk like him. Because, as we learned earlier, your region, community, education, and class all affect how you speak. The next step, according to Josh, was adopting Senator Hollings' oral posture. Things like what parts of the tongue are more released or more engaged, how much do does a person use the jaw. Uh, you'll notice, for example, Senator Hollings doesn't open or close his jaw a lot. There's a little bit of movement, but it kind of just hangs out most of the time, <laughs> right? So the jaw is one of the places we look at. We look at what's happening in the lips, uh, both the body of the lip and the corner of the lip. So one clue to a postural feature is what somebody does when they're thinking. So if I ask you a question and you don't know the answer, what kind of sound do you make? Like, uh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) mm. Uh, We call those thinking sounds or hesitation noises. And when a person drops into their thinking sound, that's a clue to how the muscles in their oral cavity or articulatory tract, whatever you want to call it, the muscles of the mouth. Uh, That's a clue to how they're most comfortably kind of sitting or resting. So he does two different vowels here. He does one that we call a schwa, which I like because my first name is Joshua. So schwa. Uh, The tongue is really, really released with this sound. It's the one that you just made. Uh, And it's very common across many dialects. Uh, uh. And then another one for Senator Hollings is slightly more open. Ah. Uh. Uh. It's quite fast, but it's more of like a, the letter that my brain goes to is an A shape, right? Uh. 
uh versus ah. Uh. Yes. Like I would say, like the the first is what I would think of when I am unsure of what I want to say. The second one would be what I would think of if I like, ah, I figured it out. Yes. He does something that's kind of more in the middle of the mouth. And I would expect somebody from New York to do something closer to the front of the mouth when they do that more ah kind of sound. Unlike Hollings, my face is very expressive when I talk. So I have to physically press my hands to my cheeks to keep my jaw from moving. Josh explained that Hollings expresses his tone through the prosody of his speech, which is another word for the pitch, rate, and rhythm of speech. While my pitch remains pretty constant when I talk, Hollings' pitch is all over the place. My last campaign, uh, I I was elected uh, for the seventh time to the United States Senate in 1998, 10 years ago. Then, Josh taught me about vowels and how Senator Hollings' Charleston accent is surprisingly similar to one from another country. Let's listen to this phrase. He says, in the House and Senate. In the House and Senate. In the House and Senate. Where else would you hear somebody say house, maybe? House. A boot. A boot. A boot, maybe in Canada. In Canada, this feature is called Canadian raising. Linguists call it Canadian raising because it's so distinctly Canadian. Mm -hmm. Put the hoose in the moose. Exactly. It's also um, distinctly Charlestonian, and this one is uh, starting to disappear. So um, speakers like Senator Hollings model this, but younger generations do something that is much similar to other areas in the South, where they will give us more of an Ow sound, mouth. Mouth. As opposed to mouth. Mouth. Exactly. So we've got three versions here. Mouth. Mouth. Versus mouth. Mouth. And what Senator Hollings does, mouth. Mouth. Yes. So can you give me in the House and Senate? In the House and Senate. Good. House. House. Good. And uh, as little jaw movement as possible, let your tongue do all of that work. In the House and Senate. In the House and Senate. Hold on. In the House and Senate. Good. So that one, House, House. is the the kind of uh, younger generation Charleston, but also wider South. And uh, let's listen to him do it again. In the House and Senate. The House and Senate. Yeah. Think about the first vowel in the The word house. house. The House and Senate. Starting from an uh sound, his thinking sound. Uh. Uh. House. House and Senate. House. The House. The House. The House and Senate. Yeah, that one. I also learned that Senator Hollings flattens out his oo sounds. So goose sounds more like goose. And his speech is non-rhotic, which means he doesn't pronounce his R's. Then it was time to put my knowledge to the test by reading some practice sentences. In the voice of Fritz Hollings, of course. The first, the abbot liked to fish without a lure. The abbot liked to fish without a lure. Yes. Now, uh, what I would say, uh, if you go back through that, think about just like the sound kind of like, huh, a little bit. Um, the abbot liked to fish without a lure. There you go. The abbot liked to fish without a lure. Now that we've kind of pulled it all apart and practiced it on some text, what are your thoughts about accent and dialect. Is there, well, first off, you have a, you have a, your job is very tough. That's the first thing that 
they came apart. But what's so interesting to me is how lots of his accent that makes it distinct is that it's not Southern in the way that I think of as Southern. It pulls from, you mentioned Canadian. This is the back door of the house. It kind of sounds a little Irish. The house is about 60 to 70 years old. It sounds like something where you could imagine hundreds of years ago where these people, where people came from one place and then they kind of separated out and for whatever reason, certain things got dropped by those in the interior south that were kept in Canada and were for some reason kept on the coast as well. Mm-hmm. Is it's like almost, there wasn't a clean breakaway in some sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, I always say to my my graduate students, it's like to really pull apart accent for what we're doing, you've got to go into history. You've got to be able to understand history and migration and also politics of the era, who had the the power and the kind of prestige. And that dialect is going to perhaps be considered the standard version of the local dialect. And if they didn't have as much power, their dialect is not maybe considered standard. Because there's uh, sometimes a perception that the standard dialect is the language. But the language is the language. English is English. And standard American English and Southern American English and British English and Canadian English, they're they're all English, right? And one isn't more correct than the other because they're – Exactly. They're using different rules. Our voices are full of history that can't be contained in a one-size-fits-all general American. Nor should they be. The fact is, I like the way that I speak. It's something that connects me with my father, and I'll hold on to anything that does that. Now, I may not sound like most Americans, but that's okay. Celebrating our differences is what makes America, America. We then put those differences together into a giant melting pot to form our country. A country where the athletic shoes you are wearing may be called sneakers, tennis shoes, or something else entirely. Coming up on our next episode, Americans are cleaner than they've ever been before. And there's a growing number of scientists who think that's actually a bad thing. Next time, the dirt on personal hygiene. Margins of Error is a production of CNN Audio and Western Sound. Our showrunner is Cameron Kell. Our producer is Savannah Wright. Production assistance and fact-checking by Nicole McNulty. Misha Stanton is our mix engineer. Additional support from Tamika Balance-Kalasny, Dan DeZula, and Allison Park. Our executive producers are Ben Adair and Megan Marcus. And me? Well, I'm Harry Enton. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.